hello, and welcome to the No Good Poetry Podcast. Each week we talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly of poetry. This is episode 15, with Joseph Bievenu and Joseph Makos. This is the good, bad, and the ugly, isn't it? Some ugly shit out there, kids. Let's make the world safer for poetry. Here we are. We are in a secret location on Esplanade Avenue, <laughs> having a little interview with with an audience today, uh, which is nice. We've got our we've got our friend on the show here talking about some New Orleans writers, uh, not New Orleans writers, sorry, uh, some writers who have spent time in New Orleans who are highly influenced by New Orleans. You culture. can call that New Orleans writers. You can call it New Orleans writers. I think so. Uh, Arthur Smith, introduce yourself. Hey, hello, everybody. This is really great. I'm sitting in my own living room here with <laughs> Joseph and Joseph and a nice audience of friends and family. So kind of fun. I'm Arthur Smith. I'm retired publishing executive. Uh, I've been the uh, last time out of the real job that I had was with the Louisiana State Museum. And for the last four years or so, I've been a tour guide in New Orleans. And I do pretty much, you know, straight hardcore history tours, and lately I've been doing tours on literary figures in New Orleans, or at least people who pass through the city, and I have a new one coming up called Bars and Barflies of Bohemia, and where that so, comes I from like is Oline <laughs> Orleanians, you would know, Joseph, uh, there's all these crews, there's the Bards of Bohemia, and the Caliphs of Cairo, Prophets of Persia, and I was looking for sort of a local slant uh, to title this tour, and also kind of bringing the poetry and writers who've been here. Most of them were not only bars, but bar flies. And this was Bohemia for them. Sure, it's kind of hard to be, I guess, uh, a sober poet in this climate. True. Well, it's inspirational, you know. It's kind of, you know, Dionysian, and when you think about it. Yeah, that uh, too. Um, you know, most of them were hardworking uh, bars, though. That's the interesting thing. They drank in the afternoon and wrote in the mornings. I'm really amazed at some of the writers that we've encountered, how, how really serious they were and how much they produced, uh, and, yet, and yet would drink and drink to excess. So it's really kind of inspiring. Well, and there's no better place to overhear a conversation than in a bar. That's there's right. nothing writers like more than to, That's right. That's to get right. some free you material. Think about it, right, exactly. <laughs> it is good free material. You know, you're hanging out, you're listening to other people's problems. Uh-huh. So this episode is going to take us through a few different people. But we're going to start here with our, I guess, polymorphously perverse mid-19th century bard that everyone knows. But people don't, a lot of people don't know that Whitman even came through New Orleans. Yes. Whitman, I think Whitman was, was uh, a lot of these guys that we're talking about, really. This is, New Orleans was a place where they sort of found themselves. And really found their identity. And this is, I think Whitman was one, and we're going to get talk to two more, about two more, but this seems to be the pattern. These writers come to New Orleans, they find themselves, they even assume new names when they get here. And uh, they find their voices as well. And, but they can't live here. You know, if they're going to be, if they're going to be big and they're going to be successful, they have to go some other Somewhere place. Else. And I think that's where the barfly piece comes in, because many of these guys, we would never have heard, heard of them. You know, you can't even think of a, of a writer in New Orleans who stayed in New Orleans who was great. 
you know? Think I mean, one. yeah. I can't think of a single I think, one. You know, I mean, I guess, I guess, I mean, I mean, I think a lot of them, they don't, they, their name doesn't get outside New Orleans. I mean, you can make right. a case for Evermatics. You can, you know, but, but outside of New Orleans, do people know Evermatics? No. Not really. Right. But there's no real reason not. I think his work is better quality than many poets who are much more famous than he is. Right. I think part of it is there's just this kind of disconnect of New Orleans. You're not on this pipeline. <laughs> well, you're not, you're not going to be discovered here. But, yeah. But, but in many, in many cases, I think it maybe it's just not a place for them. You know, if you really have these real aspirations, like, you know, the writers that we're going to see here. I mean, they are, yeah. they knew that they had a voice and they knew they couldn't get it either heard here or it wouldn't really flower here. You know, it yeah. really wouldn't produce here or mature here. So Whitman, so Whitman came here and he worked. He was a writer. Yeah. He, he was a uh, Crescent. Is that right? Uh, actually, he started out with the Daily Crescent. That the Daily his, Crescent. Yeah. Yeah. This was his first trip outside of Brooklyn. He was 28 years old, uh, and he had been uh, with the Brooklyn Eagle, and before that he had been, like you, uh, Joseph, he had been involved in the production side, the typesetter, compositor, that sort of thing. And he was offered a job down here to start up with a startup newspaper called The Daily Crescent. And he and his brother come down the river, come down, they take a train across the uh, Appalachian Mountains, they get on a steamboat. And they journeyed 2,000 miles to New Orleans. And for Whitman, it's the most exotic place in the this world. This is like 18... 1848. Okay. 1848. Wow. Okay. 1848. Yeah. So this is long journey through America, you know. And you know, Whitman, you think of Whitman as being, you know, kind of the voice, the nationalistic voice of the American soul. And this is his first real encounter with it. You know, he's been a city boy and living in Brooklyn and all of that. This is his first trip. Really into the American heartland. And I'm trying to think, like, let's put it in perspective a little bit. 1848, New Orleans. Yeah. Okay, so, like, we, there, is a, there is a rough and tumble city. They're doing bullfights. You know, no kidding. They're doing, uh, no. there's, like, a lot of sailors. There's, like, a, it's, oh, a, it's, it's basically a sailor's town. It's basically, this is at the tail end now of the uh, Mexican War. Mexican War. Yeah. And yep. the war is over in February. Of 1848, he arrives in February of 1848. Let's not talk about the war, but he arrives right in the middle of Carnival. Okay, and uh, you know he's just knocked out by. And well, that, that's that's, all that's about. quite a time and to arrive. And he's reporting on it for the for the uh, he's reporting on it for the Daily Crescent. Oh, for the okay, so he's coming yeah. here and he's a newbie and he's writing about Carnival. Yeah, it's all wide eyed wonder. And he's 28 years old, right? And he's on his own really for the first time. So it's a very, very, very profound kind of experience for him when you think about it. So he comes to New Orleans. One of the things he really loves here is, is going to he, – he, he makes a habit about going places where there's lots of activity. He goes down to the wharves. He goes down to the um, – you know, he loves the theater at night. He just roams the city. He goes to uh, – his favorite thing is to go down and get coffee at the uh, French market. So in 1848, I remember reading something about 1850 New Orleans. Yeah, there were like 500 coffee shops. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were. It was like, well, but a coffee shop too would be a, a bar. Right. It would be. That's what they right. call. That's what they right. call it. Yeah. Well, he, so they, he, he talks about the what he, what he used to call the splendid and roomy bar rooms in New Orleans. That's what <laughs> that's what he calls them. But in those splendid and roomy bar rooms, when you think about it, uh, are Really, hundreds and thousands of troops coming back and sailors coming back for the Mexican yeah. War and for 
Walt Whitman, who has really kind of repressed his, his uh, sexuality, and now he's away from home, and there's no chance that he's found out. He finds New Orleans to be, you know, a real erotic kind of a place for him. It, um, is. it is. Well, no, I yeah, know. But we'll get into it yeah, in a minute. I just wanted to. <laughs> yeah. But the other thing, too, that's really kind of, uh, we don't think about him. But, he, you know, he had this real absolute fascination with the human body. And it's all of his poems are all about oh, yeah. limbs and organs and, you know, just the look of bodies and so forth. And apparently he spent a lot of time uh, in the slave pens. You know, he's not a buyer. He's not buying slaves. He's looking, you know, he's looking at men and women who are stripped. And, you know, he really, really, you can see this is really, first of all, so it's so, you know, it's so different from anything he's ever known. Yeah. Uh, But, you know, here's a, here's a, a tourist in town, pretty much a newcomer. And where is he going? He's going to places where he can see the naked body. All of this winds up uh, in his poetry, too. Yeah, and it seems like he had a real conflicted kind of right. feelings about slavery and all of that. Right. If you look at his... He, politically, he was a free soiler, <laughs> which meant he was all for the political process of states and territories getting to choose their own, whether slavery or not. And the, the Daily Crescent was not involved in the free... The Daily Crescent was pro-slavery. They wanted slavery wherever the, wherever you could expand it. But... but uh, Whitman, with his, you know, with his uh, love of democracy, wanted the people to decide. You know? So he was a, he was a free soiler, not, not an abolitionist. Yeah. Yeah. So, but anyway, all, all these visits to the uh, slave pens wind up in his great poem, uh, I Sing the Body Electric. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's Cordell. a great poem. I love that Stanza seven uh, begins, a man's body at auction, and then he admits right away, next line, or before me, but for before the war, I often went to the slave mart and would watch the sale. So he admits right there that he's going to the to the slave marts. And then stanza eight is about a woman at auction. And he calls the woman on the block the teeming mother of mothers. So it's really and then he goes into that long at the end of the poem, he uh, goes into that long list of body parts. And, right, yeah. You know, uh so I mean you 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 the, the impression it must have made on him uh, to do that. I mean, he was drawn to it. And drawn to it as sort of as a stranger. I mean, really nobody knew him here. But it's, it's kind of a fascinating. There, there's, there's something nice about anonymity yeah. in, in, a, in, a, in a new scene, a new situation. New Orleans was definitely the northern capital of the Caribbean at that time. Right. For sure. We, it, it, the, port, the ports and the there, – right. there, there would have been a marine hotel – Pretty much where the Joan of Arc statue is, like uh-huh. on, the, on, on the levee, there's a big hotel there, uh-huh. and uh, it just would have been teeming with right. with all with a, a real cross pollination of cultures, right. especially after the Mexican or the Spanish American War. Yeah, well, he liked to hang out in hotels. He liked the Saint uh, Saint Louis Hotel, the yeah. Saint Charles Hotel, the Saint Charles Hotel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was his other big hang. Yeah. So where you would see life, you go to the St. Louis Hotel, everything was, that's where the, the auctions were. It was right by, yeah. Slave auctions, but everything would be on the block there. Which would be now the, the Omni Orleans. Yeah. That's where the exchange. There was a great giant dome where everything took place, where anything was for sale. Yeah. yeah. And that's where the commerce of the city was done. Two magnificent hotels. He lived in the St. Charles for a little bit. Uh, of course, it was right around the corner from where you're, Places, Joseph. That was Newspaper Row. The Crescent was right there, yep. too. 
on Camp Street. Yeah, they were all down. They were right. out for the center. So well, and he he stayed with his brother, kind of close to Lafayette Square. Yeah, the brother. Right? I think yeah. the brother got dysentery or something. Yeah, and that's one of the the, the king's only like sixteen years old, I think. And uh, the brother, the brother. Wow. But it, they they left. They didn't stay long. They stayed about four months. And I don't think it was anything to do with the brother's health or anything. He had a falling out with the publisher, and it might have been about politics. Oh, really? I had always heard that it was because his brother was sick. Was uh, that's part of it. Yeah. But, but they sort of had. They sort of came to some disagreement about editorial, and that's why he left. But he did go back to Brooklyn, and uh, pretty much stayed in the Northeast uh, for the rest of his life. You know, didn't didn't travel that much after that. So one thing I think we did mention, though, is, like, I think the river, to see the Mississippi River was probably a big thing for him, right? I mean, he has, oh, yeah. he has a lot of water in his in his poems. Yeah. Um, and when you think, too, he, he comes down the river. Uh, there's a steamboat, uh, Saint, well, what we call it, St. Cloud, but St. Cloud uh, comes down the river all that time. You can think of him just, you know, on the deck of that river, yeah. just meditating about this Strange new country that he doesn't even know anything about. You know, he's traveling through. I have I have a quote from him about the river. Where he said, "I used to wander, and like you're saying, with it being a port city, uh-huh. I used to wander a midday hour or two now and then for amusement on the crowded and bustling levees on the banks of the river, the diagonally wedged in boats, the stevedores and piles of cotton and other merchandise, wow. the carts, mules, negroes, etc. Afforded never-ending studies and sights to me." So I guess like we're saying too, just as a yeah. writer to to observe this teeming yeah. place. <laughs> so different. So different. And all the you know, all the travelers to the to the city remarked about that. The number of languages you'd hear, all the different races of the world gathered here. New Orleans in that uh in that last decade before the Civil War was probably the most diverse city in the United States in terms of its ethnic makeup, racial makeup, all of that. You think of the Irish, the Italians, the Croatians, the Greeks. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. When you yeah. think about that, I mean, it was all mixed up. But the, And there were slave markets, but there were also lots of free people of color. Absolutely. And and, 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 and right. across the board, it was a very wide open right. city. Yeah. And, you know, uh, when you think about the mixing of all these people, uh, in New Orleans especially, I think race relations were probably as easy as they were, even with the the horrible presence of slavery. This was the number one slave market in the United States. Even with that, when you think about race relations in the city, they were rather kind of free and easy. Yeah, I mean, you almost had to, to comparatively. What's that? You, you, it had to be comparatively yeah. just because of the different right. kinds of Well, you know, here, that's, you know, that's the kind of city that was the city for so long where people just lived cheek by jowl. Yeah. And there's a certain urbanity to it, you know, that people living in, for generations after generation, after generation, in cities uh, like that, and not leaving, uh, staying. You get that kind of uh, urbanity and sophistication in, in, in relationships. It just kind of wears it, wears it together, you know? So, but anyway, we were talking about how, how the writers that we're talking about, the poets that we're talking about today sort of find themselves. And I think this is where Whitman really kind of sort of comes out, we'd say today, where he finds his sexuality and again it's that it's that it's the atmosphere at the end of the war in mexico and this place is just teeming with single men in the military or in the merchant marine and things like that so it's really kind of for him i think and of course he's he's on his own 
You know, yeah. he doesn't have to worry about being anything, any baggage in his life. So yeah, he does yeah. write two poems here that really kind of very, very clearly express, uh, well, some would say they're homosexual, but male love in that 19th century way comes out. And the one I think is, uh, how does that go? The, the uh, uh, I saw, in Louisiana, I saw a live oak growing. Yeah, yeah, title? yeah. I was trying to think of it too. I was like, I know there's trees in it. Yeah, I can't but it's remember. all about yeah. But those trees, I mean, they're all. If you were Sigmund Freud, you would all get, you would get the picture of those, those tree trunks, you know. But the the poem, I think, that really, really, really uh, says it all for him is "Once I Passed Through a Populous City." And speaking of populous city, it was a populous city. Uh, census of 1850, New Orleans was the fifth largest city in America, and really on the make because the next. The next 10 years, it really, the population just exploded. So it was crowded, too, unlike some of the other cities. Uh, yeah. it, was, it was a big city. It was the only big city in the South. And it would have been a crowded, populous city. And in that poem, the, 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 um, I think that the real story behind it is when he talks about this love of a woman, this very brief, very intense uh, affair that he has in New Orleans. So, is uh, just, you know, as intense and bittersweet as you can get. Uh, in the original manuscript, it's published in Leaves of Grass as a woman who talks about meeting this woman. But in the 1920s, one of the Whitman scholars discovered the manuscript. And everywhere you read the word woman in the original manuscript, not the published Leaves of Grass version, but in the original manuscript, he uses the word man. And I think in I think in some of the some of the ways that it's published now they've re restored it. They've restored it. Yeah. yeah. The deathbed uh, edition is like the definitive leaves of grass one where it's like the latest because he edited it his whole life. Yeah. When was the last yeah. one out? Oh he yeah, he did keep keep editing it's, and editing. It's one. whatever the last one is, it's like it's considered I the, should have brought that with me, but yeah, I mean you nor, normally when you buy a copy of it now, nice sirens in the background. Um <laughs> Normally what, when you get a... Uh, what do we do? We just, that's fine. Okay. People will deal with it. But yeah, normally now that you... you Normally when you buy any copy of Lisa Graphics, now that'll have all the multiple versions in there with the different years on it, so you can see. Uh-huh. Well, do you know, you do know, you know what edition this... When he published this one? What, what, what... Was it the first one? Did he... Or when he wrote it, too. See, that's the other thing. Yeah. When, where is it in his memory? You know? I wonder, yeah. Well, yeah, the deathbed edition is like the edits that he had made, like Wordsworth edited, basically edited the prelude until he was dead. So did, and so did, and so did Whitman. Whitman edited Leaves of Grass his whole life. Right. So there's, there's a bunch of different versions of Leaves of Grass. There's like the first one, and then there's like, we, I, we we always studied the deathbed edition in college. So it's like the latest, it's like the latest. Yeah. So could he, could he, could he have... Let's, let's assume that the man version was the or version, okay? Could he have changed it? Could that have been a, a second version, a woman to a man, a man to a woman? I mean, could he have done it a couple of times? Probably. I'm yeah. sure Whitman definitely did it a couple of times. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he did too. <laughs> but the question is, how did he do it and with whom did he do it? <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe, I don't know, because that the first edition that he published, you know, uh, it was like there's like a whole story behind that first edition. Like he he wrote the 
Whitman wrote the reviews of his own book. You know yeah, that? He, he wrote. <laughs> he wrote his own reviews oh, yes. under under pseudonyms and got <laughs> good those, for him. I like that. And got those PR man. And got those published, and then it was like, wow, okay, there's this guy. He's well, anybody who write a book called "Song of Myself," I guess, from <laughs> like that. Right? Well, that's classic marketing, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I don't know. But I, some of them, I think he made changes, but some of them he added. He added portions a considerable too. amount of stuff. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, let's assume that the original manuscript said man, he, he, and somehow or other before it got into print, became woman. Because it was woman. just too heavy for the people. It really was. No, it wasn't the first version attacked as being obscene and yeah. pornographic. I mean, and, most of the erotic things in Whitman's work feel very male to me. It doesn't feel, even when it's written in with with being a woman, it doesn't feel like that. No. Yeah, you know. I think the things right. he pays attention to are right. not. <laughs> yeah. Well, should we hear it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's hear it. Who should read that one? You can. Well, not. Uh, no, you read it. Quiet. A woman reading it? Yeah. A woman. Let's go. Let's go. Yeah. Yeah. Right. A woman reading a male written poem about a woman. Yes. Yeah. Gender bending. Okay. Once I passed through a populous city, imprinting my brain for future use with its shows, architecture, customs, traditions. Yet now all of that city, I remember only a woman I casually met there who detained me for love of me. Day by day and night by night, we lived together. All else has long been forgotten by me. I remember I say only that woman who passionately clung to me. Again, we wander. We love. We separate again. Again, she holds me by the hand. I must not go. I see her close beside me with silent lips, sad and tremulous. You know, that does sound like love in the quarter. <laughs> it really does. I see it brings me back to my Love in the quarter? Yeah, it brings me back to that, you know, my mystical period here was in the sixties. You know. I think back on river fogs and smells and all of that and girls and you know, being young. He was twenty eight. Yeah. And I sort of found myself here. See now I never became a great writer. Because I stay here. You know what I'm saying? That's why we're not doing this show about, about how to become a tour guide, you know? The, the city of unlimited distractions. Yeah. I consider no, it the yeah. ultimate city of distractions. See what happens, yeah. Solution? Get out of here. Get out of here. Oh, yeah. It, but it just always amazes me, and that's one of those ones of how it, the directness of it, it's so modern. Like, yeah. it's unbelievable. It's, that it is someone real. could have written that last week. And <laughs> it is well, incredibly modern. Yeah, <laughs> it's free verse, you know. Yeah, but there's a lot of you know, there's a lot of free verse that doesn't feel like that. Uh huh. That's true. But yeah, no, it's just. Well, no, yeah. If you're well, talking about basically what, what other going on what in other poetry was going on at the time, uh, it's vastly different. There's from, nothing yeah. really going on in the in, world, in the in the canon. Yeah, when you go back to the eighteenth, mid nineteenth century canon of New Orleans, or of not New Orleans writing, but American writing in general, uh-huh. tell me who else is doing something even close to what Whitman is doing? Nobody. Uh-huh. And that's why the beats. That's why the beats celebrate. Well, this is this is which is which is, when we get into uh, our last writer tonight, our last book. Yeah, is very close to what we're going to hear from him. Of course, know? yeah. And it's direct. It's simple. You know, the language. Uh, you know, there's nothing complicated about that at all. This might be the last word, tremulous, that he kind of throws at you as a. Yeah, but it's very, it's very, 
it's very restrained. Yeah. Those words will come in so rarely. Right. And right. it is more like, you know, spoken right. every day on the right. street. I wonder how he wrote. I wonder if he was the kind of writer who just would just sort of lose himself or did he labor over these things? It doesn't feel laborious to me. A little bit. It's hard to say. And I mean, I think it depends on the poem. Like that seems like some maybe written in one sitting. Uh-huh. But other things, maybe, and maybe it's the list nature of them, it almost feels like he collects, collected things slowly over time. Right. I mean, he's very observational a lot of the time. And he yeah. knew just when to end it. Yeah. You know, it doesn't say any more or any less than what he needs to say, you know? And it's a very simple concept, too. I, that's the only thing I remember of that fabulous city. He's taking note. The architecture, the customs. He's really <laughs> yeah, kind of shorthand for really all, of the, remember, all of yeah. the things that he writes in prose about the wharves and the coffee and the slaves and you know the babble on the uh, of the streets. I mean, he puts it right in there, uh, just encapsulates it, and then you know brings you what he really does remember. It doesn't none of that stuff means anything. So that's why I say if this was perhaps his first or perhaps his most intense. Today, as a 28-year-old, that's why I say, you know, the writers like this, when they come here, they they have these experiences that they never forget, and it makes them who they are. So, to kind of maybe move this on to our next uh, writer, which is, I was just kind of thinking, I wonder if, like, so Whitman was here in the 1850s, and and, uh, our next writer was here in... First came here in the 1930s. Okay. And let's see, he would have been in his 20s. This, and he was, had a different name, first name. His name was Tom. Tom. And then he got here and, you know, he really, really kind of found out that he really was not Tom, but Tennessee. So this is Tennessee Williams, changed his name. So, who we don't often think of as a poet, but... But he certainly was, and you were saying he considered yeah, himself. Yeah, I mean, well, you, this is one of these guys that you know. Uh, when you think about his output, seventy plays. We only think in terms of like five or six, you know, that actually were yeah. masterpieces. You know, uh, Streetcar and the Glass Menagerie and those those sorts of plays. Night of the Iguana. Night of the Iguana. Yeah. Uh, but, I like some of the small ones better though. Even I like some of the small. Yeah, I do too. They're interesting. Some of last summer. I mean, I can see why they're not. Yeah, and some of them are. You know, I mean, that Calais Real one. Oh, that's that Calais Real one. Where yeah, oh, that's Camino Real. Weird, yeah, Camino Real. Yeah, such a such a strange play, but it's wonderful. But I can see why. Have you ever Have you ever dipped into Lord Byron's letter? No. Set in New Orleans. It's about uh, this very elderly lady set around the turn of the century uh, in New Orleans. A woman has a letter from Lord Byron. It's a love letter. And the whole poem, the whole play is a little one-act play. It's about a visitor she has, and it's trying the visitor's trying to get her to open up the letter and read it. Huh. The love letter from Lord Byron. And of course, you, at the end of the play, you, should I spoil it? Yeah, at the end of the play, sure. you realize that she's the woman okay. that Byron wrote the letter uh, to. Okay. And here she is in New Orleans around the turn of the century. Oh. Um, so I'm she's this elderly woman. Yeah. It's a very interesting kind of thing. But that poetry is in, not only does he write poetry, but poetry is in all of his well, plays. Well, his plays are very lyrical. Yeah. And, and I mean, I think 
what he always wanted them to be put on in more of an imagistic fashion than I think they were put on. Like he wanted there to be like screens with projections of things behind oh, yeah. them, and oh, yeah. he Ta- wanted it to be the tableau the, the, vivant, the, the stuff the, like that, the atmosphere, and the, and the way he really really dwelled on sets and lighting and things like that. When you see when you see a really good production of a Tennessee Williams play. I mean, it is a dreamlike quality, you know, the music, all of that sort of stuff that he really, 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 um, you know, he, he conceived them. He had to be a playwright. A playwright, writing these plays was kind of, you know, it just put more and more and more yeah, around but, the poetry. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but that's part of what I love about his plays, though, and they are very poetic in that uh-huh. respect. He understood them to be artificial things, unlike some playwrights who were trying to make them these kind of realist sort of affairs he wasn't trying to do that at all it was like no this is about like you're saying about atmosphere and about the feeling of the thing and i'm not worried about the characters seeming realistic i want them to be big and i want them to bring these feelings out not be (laughs) but what about his poetry well he he, i think he really put it uh best in uh suddenly last summer there's a line in there from uh sebastian venable's mother Violet Venable, and she's talking about her son. Of course, you know Sebastian disappears under some very strange circumstances. He's, he's, uh, I think he's devoured by the kids uh, on the street in Spain. Uh, but anyway, he is a closet case, Sebastian. But also the way the mom describes him as a poet, and she said, "If you're a poet, your life is your work, and your work is your life." So there's this long passage that the mom, uh, Violet Venable, talks about Sebastian, and she's she's talking to a doctor, a psychiatrist. She says, uh, if you if you're a lawyer or or a plumber or a merchant or a thief, you don't have you can be something else. You can have a life, but if you're a poet, your life is your work, <laughs> and your work is your life. And it's this long soliloquy about what it is to be a poet, and I think he just slipped it in there as a way of kind of saying my own reflections about what I do is, is in that, in that one. And it's, you know, it's kind of a goofy play, but, but, uh, you know, that's what she says. I mean, that's what Tennessee thinks about says So he's, so he's, he's yeah. like you say, it's really, he's really consumed with the calling to be a poet, you know? And, uh, I think that goes all the way through, you know, he was writing poems as a kid. He writes poems till almost to the day he died. I wonder if that's, I wonder if that's something that really filled in his like need to be writing, but not working on a play specifically. If it was like something that just kept him going as a writer, he was always working on something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, this is why why you have to admire these guys because really, when you know we have our bohemians and our barflies. I mean, he would write even when he was down there in Key West in Cuba, everywhere he was. Yeah, he would write pretty much every day. But I but I came across a little bit of a a kind of a. I guess kind of a sad end to his life. You know, he died in a hotel by himself. He was in the Elysee Hotel. And Tennessee being a real character to the end, he called the Elysee the Easy Lay. <laughs> the Easy Lay Hotel. You know, officially he died of swallowing a bottle cap, but I guess you have to realize what was in the bottle cap. In the bottle was Seagamol and on top of alcohol. And it's a deadly combination. That's the same thing that got Truman Capote and so many other people, Marilyn Monroe maybe, of that era. You know, when yeah. you think about it. 
But anyway, I, he was writing poems to the end. And I, I like this one that he wrote just a few days before he died. His career's going nowhere. You know, he hadn't really produced a play uh, on Broadway in, you know, 15, 20 years. But anyway, he writes this little doggerel about two or three days before he dies. Why do I want to go away? Going, going, gone. Done my best and traveled on. He wanted to be buried like Hart Crane. That was his favorite poem. He wanted to be, favorite poet rather, he wanted to be uh, wrapped in a canvas bag and dumped overboard in the ocean. Yeah. Um, But that didn't happen. (laughs) So there you go. Tennessee Williams. Um, Poetry in all of his plays, uh, one way or the other. And of course, the one that everybody remembers is the, uh, the, the play, which is really about the poet. Uh, Nano, uh, Nana the Iguana. Yeah. And uh, that whole, the, the climax of the play is when Nano comes out with this last poem and everything just, you know, is laid bare. All of the other characters just listen intently. Of course, Hannah, um, his daughter, is finally relieved. She knows that, that uh, Nano can die. This kind of reminds you, too, of Tennessee's death. You know, she knows that that Nana, her father, her grandfather, right, who she's been wheeling around the world, you know, and he's been, he's been on this poem for, for years and years and years, and finally, finally it comes to him. Uh, and he recites the poem, and everybody, uh, all the lost souls in that, that play suddenly find, in poetry, they find the piece that they've been looking for. Nana's poem. How calmly does the olive branch observe the sky begin to blanch without a cry, without a prayer, with no betrayal of despair. Some time while night obscures the tree, the zenith of its own life will be gone past forever, and from thence a second history will commence. A chronicle no longer gold, a bargaining with mist and mold, and finally the broken stem, the plummeting to earth, and then an intercourse not well designed, for beings of a golden kind, whose native green must arch above the earth's obscene, corrupting love. And still the ripe fruit and the branch observe the sky begin to blanch without a cry, without a prayer, with no betrayal of despair. O courage, could you not as well select a second place to dwell, not only in that golden tree, but in the frightened heart of me? Wonderful. This this is a perfect end to that play. What do you think about it? Everybody, everybody, these lost souls suddenly find themselves when Nano delivers himself of the poem. And this is an actual poem. He wrote it in Port of Vallarta in 1940. Oh, okay. And so when he writes the play, he just kind of recycles it. And the original poem was titled, How Still the Lemon in the Branch, it's called. And then the odd thing was, uh, in, the, um, in the movie version, uh, it's an olive branch. How, how calmly doth the olive branch? And in the Broadway play, it's an orange branch. Well, now, I why did they change that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> why did they do that? You know? It just doesn't make any sense. Well, that movie's weird. Well, the, in it's the stage play, movie. you know who played the Ava Gardner role? Who was, she was perfect, but I, I think Betty Davis was played the Ava Gardner role. Uh, uh, no, wow, no, no, no. huh? Uh. And I, let me, who played uh, Shannon? Uh, let me see. Somebody we all know. Can't remember. Somebody. Do we want to say anything about his, his time in New Orleans? Yeah. Poems about the Crescent City while he was here. And one of them is 
Warnings on Bourbon Street. Do you know that one? I don't. I, I don't, I don't think I've, re I've really oh, okay. read any of his poems. I'll give you one line from it, which is, you know, almost like a, a, a postcard line. And it's, um, it's called Mornings on Bourbon Street. He wrote it in Santa Monica in 1943. Well, just to give you a little bit of background, uh, he comes to New Orleans in the 1930s. Now, some people say he was lured here uh, by uh, Lyle Saxon to write WPA copy for the, you know, the writer's Right, of course. Almanacs and, and gods. The, uh, the, the city guides. City guides, city yeah. City guide book. Now, there's no real proof of that, uh, that he did that. He was just here as a writer and really just out of, uh, just out of college, really, at the University of Missouri. And, you know, oddly enough, he, um, he had a very puritanical uh, young adulthood and adolescence. He really didn't lose his virginity until his early 20s, I think mid-20s. And it happened here according to most of the sources I read, that he did lose his virginity here, becomes Tennessee here. And um, he was really enchanted with the place. But years later, not too long ago, after that, he's out in California and he remembers New Orleans and he writes a poem called Mornings on Bourbon Street. It's a long, long poem, and I'll just just give you a little taste of it. He, he's uh, writing about uh, the tall iron horseman before the Cabildo tipping his hat so gallantly towards the old wharfs, the mist of the river beginning to, to climb about him. So he's writing about uh, that scene, which we all know, dawn along the river and Andrew Jackson and the mist coming up. But that poem was about love. That poem was about, it's a wandering poem. He wanders around the quarter, and then at some point he just finds, and he repeats it four times, love, 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 love. And I think that's kind of the same experience as, as Walt Whitman, you know, a hundred years before that. So, again, we find this writer sort of finding himself in this city. He comes back to write Streetcar. He, New Orleans is in his plays, lots of his plays. Yeah, he sets up here in a, a bunch of different... Uh, yeah. Uh, there's yeah. the... There's the... There's the uh, is it... A, is it um, I forget, is it Dumaine? There's a house... Yeah, he's got has a, the 1000 block of Dumaine. The whole... Uh, it's like this really interesting metalwork scene right. in front of the door. Yeah, yeah. It's like the, yeah. He lived on Toulouse Street uh, in the 30s, and then in the 40s, he comes back in uh, And all of a sudden, he's an overnight sensation, but there's, no, there's not another play until uh, Streetcar. That, that's mm -hmm. the one that yeah. really makes his reputation. And there's... Uh, uh, there's a really cool photo series of him. Maybe you've never seen this. And it's like later in life, and he's he's a photographer. They're just taking shots of him. Yeah. They're in the rooftop of a the attic uh -huh. of one of his houses, right. and it's like the lights coming through, and there's pigeons right. and stuff. It's very cool. Uh, yeah. I, I'll send you the link to the yeah. images. Very really cool. But it's he's older, and he's you know it's interesting pictures of him in New Orleans. Well, it's a whole series of photos. That that house on Toulouse Street. He always he always said you know he. The way he wanted to go, instead of dying at the Easy Lay Hotel by himself, he always said, I wanted to die in the big the big brass bed in my apartment in New Orleans, the scene associated with so much L-O-V-E, love. That's where he wanted to go. <laughs> he, he was happy here. You know, this was a place that was special to him. And he lived... Oh no! I think uh, maybe I'm making it, but wasn't uh, maybe he one of the houses that he lived in was? Um, uh, maybe there was another writer that lived in that house too. I can't remember. Which one was that? 
I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to remember if you if it was if you knew something. We can we can edit this out. We need to. But... <laughs> okay. He, he to... never lived in Faulkner's house. Didn't Williams live in Faulkner's house? For no, no, no. He, he lived around the block on St. Peter's. He lived around the block. Okay. No, Capote lived uh, on Seven uh, Seven Eleven Royal Street, which is here. Faulkner lives over here, and um, Tennessee lives over here on St. Peter. So they're like. Right there. And they're all at the same time? They're all here. Well, that's a funny thing. Uh, uh, Capote and uh, Williams just miss each other. Just miss each other? Just, they, meet, they meet in New York. Okay. And uh, they become, they're two flamboyant dudes, so they become friends pretty pretty quickly. They travel together through Italy, and uh, I think they meet up in Tangier at one point. But, uh, you know, and this, they, they got to be pretty close. Uh, but it was... You know, I mean, there was always these blow-ups and separations stuff because they were too, that kind of personality. But they seem to meet, they just meet. I was trying to find out. But they come back to New Orleans and they, they hang out together later in life, you know, when they're both successful. You know, he, he was, a, I, I, I see Williams as somebody who was, who was just very courageous and very frail at the same time. And you see that in this poem, you know. The, yeah. The frightened heart of me, you know. I mean, he's just very, 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 always so vulnerable. He's the Blanche Dubois character. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. him. That's his anima, you know. and But very courageous at the same time, you know. Very interesting character. The more I think about him, the more I like him, you know. Yeah. I mean, it seems like he felt like he was, there was some price for his art in some way. And, that, and I think that's part of that frailty or something that he, he feels like he has, that he, he sees that it's connected to his artistic ability to uh-huh. But you know, it's, but the humility too, asking for courage, you know, I think that's a really, you know what, you know what's the most wonderful thing about these three or four people we're going to be talking about? They're so apolitical. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know, everything today is politics. Everything today is attitude. Everything today is, uh, you know, is at some level that all of these guys are all talking about the big issues, life and death and what happens in between. And that's what I like about this. You know, he's really kind of yeah. coming right to the, you know, what is it all about? What does our life mean? You know, I guess that's poetry anyway. I should read more of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.